we are continuing in our series called Jesus People. Um, it's a study in discipleship based on Matthew chapters 8 through 12. We're just kind of taking a sampling from uh, mostly Matthew 8 and 9 because we've covered a lot of that material already in a series called Saving Power. If you're interested in covering that information that we've already been through, uh, it's on our website, it's on our podcast, on all the major platforms. Look it up. Hopefully you'll be blessed. So, uh, but in between all of that, we've been, uh, we had skipped over certain moments that Jesus had had with his disciples and different other encounters that he had had. And so since it's a series on discipleship based on kind of getting a day in the life of a disciple, uh, for our sake and just to keep it before us, the idea of discipleship, it's a, it's a Bible word, it's a church word, it's something that, uh, you know, the practice itself is something that's applicable, applicable, you know, throughout all different parts of life, um, but it's really, uh, it's the idea of apprenticeship and how Jesus lived that out in his life, how he identified uh, certain people to come and follow him. And uh, today we're going to get to see um, a moment where he called somebody and what happened after that. Um, but we'll talk about that in a moment. So discipleship, just a brief snapshot of what discipleship looked like for Jesus as a disciple maker. Uh, he would call a person, they would hopefully respond in the positive and say yes. And what it would entail, the movements of discipleship, what it looks like, the very like just big, big movements is to be with your mentor, be with Jesus, be with your disciple maker, um, to do the things that the disciple maker did. Uh, so as a first century rabbi, they were wanting to know, Jesus, how do you interpret what's in this book? Jesus, how do you minister to people? And so the disciples, they were front row seat watching and learning from Jesus on how to do what Jesus did. And then as a result of all that is ultimately to become like your rabbi, to become, in this case, to become like Jesus. It's like if I were to apply myself to a certain trade, if I wanted to get really good at making leather belts, I would go to a leather worker because I just think that's so cool and I really want to do it someday. But if I were to do that, I would spend a ton of time with this leather making kind of guy who just, he devotes, or, or a gal, who just devotes their life to making leather belts and I would learn the best ways to do it, all the nice you know, movements of the hand to just make sure that I use the tool just so and just right to produce something like what that teacher would have. I think you get the idea. So I'm not going to belabor the point. You can go to the next slide, and we're going to do a, a brief review um, of where we're at. So Gospel of Matthew, it was written by a guy named Matthew. It's really convenient that way. I love it. It's fantastic. Uh, it was written before the fall of Jerusalem, so if you want to Google that sometime, you will be blessed somehow <laughs> through that research. Uh, this was early on in Jesus' ministry where he had just gotten started in a town called Capernaum, and he had been uh, starting to amass quite a following of people who wanted 
to know more about Jesus and what he was doing. Uh, because one of the things that Jesus did right from the get-go, right as soon as he started his ministry, he was going around preaching and teaching, repent, where the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. Uh, and he also was doing all kinds of healing ministries as well. So then, let's talk about the disciples. So the disciples were people, at least at this point in Matthew, who were specific people that Jesus had called out to come and follow him. So we got a snapshot of uh, Peter and his brothers down at the docks, loading up their fishing boat, and Jesus was walking along the shore, and he said, come and follow me, and they dropped their nets and went to follow Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit about why somebody would do that. Uh, and then there was the crowd. There were the people, like we said, where they're the people who are just really excited at the stuff that Jesus is doing because nothing like this has happened in their lifetime before. Uh, the, their normal teachers didn't teach like Jesus did. Uh, the priests didn't minister like Jesus did. Um, and, you know, performing all kinds of healing, miraculous things were happening with Jesus. It was a special time. And so there's the disciples in the crowd. So last week, that all brings us to last week, the topic was the cost, the cost of discipleship and how following Jesus, we learned, it challenges comfort and convention in order to embody his way, that becoming like him. We talked about how, you know, forward movement uh, there's a need for form, forward movement in our life and in discipleship and a need to refocus. And that also uh, the call of discipleship or the cost of discipleship, it, you know, it, it reveals that Jesus is wanting to push us beyond our comfort zone and beyond our limits. And it really tests our level of commitment to follow. And also that it tests you know, how much stock we put into convention because sometimes Jesus is going to challenge that as well, maybe blow up our paradigm a little bit uh, to call us out into a certain thing. That all brings us to today. And Richard, you can go to the next slide. The title for today's message is just simply Call. The Call. Our passage is Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. And our big idea uh, is Christ's call communicates compassionate character. Christ's call communicates compassionate character. I love it when alliteration works because sometimes it's just fantastic that way. That's where I nerd out. So there we are. Christ's call communicates compassionate character, and we'll discuss that. Next slide. So when I was younger and I was in elementary school, I never was a part of the, the community sports teams. That wasn't a part of my life. Uh, but something that I did do was at recess time, we would play soccer. And as I grew older, I became increasingly desirous of wanting to play soccer. I always got pegged as the goalie because I'm a little stockier than most. I don't move as fast as most, and I tend to cry when you kick me. And so... Um, <laughs> And that's why my son Reuben is the way he is. And so anyway, so, but I don't know if this picture is triggering for you like it is for me. I don't know. But there was always that moment where when I was at recess 
and there would be the people who are like, I'm the team captain. And so they would make the choice of who was going to be on their team. And they'd always pick the athletic guys who, I mean, it's a no-brainer, no duh. Like, you want those guys on your team because they're going to make the goals. But at, for the rest of us, it, you know, as the time grew on and on, it became increasingly more like, boy, am I going to get picked? A am I going to be included? Am I going to be chosen for this sort of thing? And so I use that as an illustration because it's just a really apt one to kind of describe the process of discipleship in Jesus' day. Um, because for a rabbi, that's what they would call a teacher who knew a whole, whole bunch about the Bible that, you know, more than your average bear, you know, just the person who just, they've devoted their life to the scriptures and to communicating God's word. It was kind of like a traveling pastor in that day. And so what they would do is they would just be going around doing ministry. They would, they would, uh, they would stop at different synagogues and preach and teach their perspective on the scriptures. And there would be a person who would kind of run up to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, I want to be your disciple. And then the rabbi would grill them on the scriptures, seeing what they know. And if that person proved to be the best of the best of everything that you know, that could ever be, this rabbi would be like, come follow me. And then the person would, you know, just start being with the rabbi, like we said, doing what the rabbi did, learning everything they can and trying to become like that person. So for Jesus, he kind of turned it on its head a little bit, where for him, it was kind of like, in, in a way, it was kind of like this picture of these kids choosing where the rabbi goes and chooses and, and seeks out the disciples and seeking them out and saying, hey, you, come follow me. Without grilling them, without testing them, without saying, hey, what is uh, Job 39.2? <laughs> or something, you know, just something really out there like, ah, I don't know, or like, what's your perspective on the creation? Ooh, that's a good hot button issue. You know, he didn't do any of that. He just, he went to the people and he said, come follow me. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Peter and his brothers and all the other fishermen, they were tradespeople. They were not the best of the best. They were the guys who probably got picked to be goalie <laughs> on the soccer team. And so Jesus coming up to them and saying, I think you can do what I can do. That was a big deal to them, and that's why they chose to follow him. Now, we've covered that. Put that up on a shelf for a moment. We're going to cover some just overall context of what brings us to today. Next slide. Pax Romana. Have you ever heard that term before? Maybe. Maybe in history class. Okay, so at the time of Jesus, Rome ruled virtually everything in the known world for them. They were the empire. Rome was the empire. Caesar was king. And um, there was this phrase, the peace of Rome or Pax Romana. And so um, really what it meant was they were keeping the peace, you know, law and order, so to speak, where um, as long as you played by the rules and as long as you gave tribute to Rome, 
you were good. But if you decided to maybe rebel a little bit or maybe be, you know, cause a little bit of ruckus here and there, it was not good. It was not a peaceful time. And Rome would come and smash you <laughs> and put you under their thumb. And so, like a hundred years before Jesus, roughly, there was this, uh, uh, this group called the Maccabees who uh, they led a revolt um, against Rome because they were like, we're God's people. We don't have to take this. We're not going to take it. And so, um, <clears throat> and so there wasn't really a whole lot of peace in this area. It was kind of a contested area, the, you know, where Israel was because Israel was an occupied state, and they knew who they were. They knew they were God's people. They knew that they had a purpose and a plan for their life. They knew that God had given Abraham that land, and that he'd given the descendants that land, and they knew that they really messed it up, but they had a hope for a day when he was going to send somebody named a Messiah or titled the Messiah who was going to set everything right and restore everything as it's supposed to be. But they were an occupied state. Roman occupied Rome. Uh, Roman occupied uh, Judah, rather. And so what, what came of this is that they needed to collect some taxes. This isn't like necessarily the voluntary kind of stuff that we do with the IRS. It was, like I said, you pay us taxes or we squash you. And so but what Rome did, it was really, they kind of took a, a page from the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and they would recruit people from among the people to exact those taxes from them. And so you would have these tax collectors who, they were kind of seen as turncoats, if you've ever heard that term before, or, you know, traitors, uh, not good people. Um, it was the perspective of most. Like, how dare you align yourself with Rome? They're the ones who are occupying us. Don't you know that we're supposed to be God's people? Enter Jesus. Now, Jesus is talking about, he's going around, he's preaching and demonstrating the kingdom of heaven here and now. It has arrived. Jesus is here. He is He's literally healing the sick. He's literally, you know, bringing peace to people's lives in a way that doesn't mean that you have to pay taxes to them or that you have to, you know, pay a certain service fee. It's because of God's grace and modeling God's grace to his people in that favor that comes with the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is modeling that. And he's calling his disciples. And he is, he's amassing this, this posse of people who just want to see what Jesus is doing. And that comes in direct conflict with the kingdom of Rome or the empire of Rome at that time. And so for Jesus' disciples, they're kind of picking up on the fact that there's something different about Jesus. There's something unique about Jesus that is different than any other teacher we've ever had. He even, by this point in the story, he's calmed a storm <laughs> that the disciples went through while they were on the boat. They'd never seen anything like that happen before. There's something different about Jesus, and so could he be the one? Could he be the Savior, the Messiah, to come and set all things right? Some of them were really convinced of that. And so 
that's where things are going to be lovely and conflicting in just a moment. Uh, you can go to the next slide. OK. Last piece of context. Thank you for bearing with me. Something to note is that we mentioned last time is that these little moments with the disciples, they happened between, Matthew puts them between these sets of miracles. And it kind of gives you a, a context for what happens in the middle for what happens on the sides. And so we had Jesus healed the paralytic at the beginning of chapter 9. And right after this, he uh, performed a miracle that he didn't intend to, where there was the lady who had reached out for the hem of Jesus' garment. Maybe if I could just touch the hem of his robe, I could be healed. And she was healed. The sick were catching on to the fact that Jesus was here to make them whole again and to make them complete. And so then there's the call of this guy named Matthew. And so that's all the context I'm going to give you for today. That's enough. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. All right. As Jesus went on from there, from healing the paralyzed man, as he went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, this is the word of the Lord recorded by the Apostle Matthew. The first thing I see in our passage today is that there is the call to follow. It extends to those we would least expect. Those we would least expect. What is so significant, if you were paying attention, about Matthew being a tax collector? That means he wasn't on good terms with most of the people. If this was in the town of Capernaum, there is a good chance that he may have exacted taxes from some of Jesus' own disciples. This was a scandalous call for Jesus to make. No one expected it. How could that person be a disciple of Jesus? Jesus is so good, and we're mediocre. We're, we're goalie quality, right? Like, we're okay, but we're not like tax collectors. Oh, don't get me started about those tax collectors. How could they do that? So I have an illustration here. It's going to 
kind of move a little fast here. And so I have the circle, and it represents um, people, They're, you know, a gathering of people or a community of people where we have this idea that we are all one or we're all in this one area together and we're trying to do stuff coexisting, right? We're, we're doing all that. But then, next slide. But really, there comes a point in every conversation or there comes a point in every, you know, as time progresses where we get an us and them mentality. Um, I was thinking, you know, this morning as I was putting together my slides, uh, the Pink Floyd song, Us and Them, came to mind, if that helps you. Um, but, you know, the idea of us and them, you know, us, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. We're on the in crowd, they're on the out crowd. Us and them and the irony of that dynamic is that it works both ways so then if you know for one people group if it was we are right you are wrong on the wrong side quote unquote it'd be but we're right and you are wrong it made me think some of you were alive during this time uh which makes me hecka jealous because i just i I love it so much about that time, except for uh, is, you know, during the 60s, so much good music happened, so much good music, amen. Um, some not so good music happened too, but I digress. But <clears throat> there was this moment, and I was trying to think of how to illustrate it for you. There was the phrase hawks versus doves that kind of got thrown out there in the 60s to determine how you felt about the Vietnam War. And depending on where you fell on that side, depended on how you, how you approached things and how you approached people. And if you found out that somebody else had a certain viewpoint that wasn't your viewpoint, then instantly a wall would come up. It's like, ah, oh, we, can't, we can't associate anymore. You're a part of that crowd. Even worse, in that time for those who served, uh, it was equally as polarizing for them coming back. Both ways, it was polarizing. Because then it was an us and them mentality the other direction of like, well, we're really right and you were in the wrong. And I won't go into all those details because I don't want to trigger too much for those of you who lived through that. But that's not God's heart for his people. So, next slide. So Jesus calls us to follow him. And so then there's this contrast between there's the us and them, the people who make up this group. But then suddenly they are called into discipleship by Jesus, whether they're on the right side or the wrong side, and they're called into it. And instead of going away from each other, now they're centered on Jesus and they have Jesus in common because they are trying to become like Jesus. And so you, you can go to the next slide uh, from there just to remind us. The call to follow, it extends to those we would least expect 
even the people we would consider our enemies for whatever reason, we would call it, it extends to them too, because God's love is for them too. God's compassionate heart, his compassionate call that he's trying to speak out to people is for them too. And that's a weird thing. And that's a weird tension in the kingdom of God, that, that truly the ground is level at the foot of the cross for each and every one of us. We're all sinners. So you can go to the next slide. The second thing I see is that there are the questionable lost and broken. The company Jesus was keeping, all of them were welcome at the table with Jesus. So we've identified that problem with tax collectors, but who does Matthew, when he's describing these people who happened to be at his home when he brought Jesus home for dinner, and people just kept flocking there, and he describes them as many tax collectors and sinners. Who are these people? I'm glad you asked. Next slide. Okay, so in Matthew 9, 10, it says, while Jesus was having dinner, Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. That word is a Greek word that means sinful, sinner, and in some context, the implication is that these are social outcasts to certain pious Jewish people, like the Pharisees. Um, and that word, it has its root in the word for sin, which means to miss the mark. And so, sinners were there, people who were not aiming for righteousness, really. They were missing the mark on you know, one of the, the dictionaries I looked at, it basically said these were people who were devoted to sin, <laughs> which it's like, man, how do, a conscious effort to do that, goodness. But, um, and yet they went to go and be with Jesus at Matthew's house. Word got out that Jesus chose Matthew, and so suddenly this scandalous thing that's happening they want to see what's going on. And so they come, these sinners, these, these outcasts, these, uh, these broken people, these lost people who really need a Savior. They're not the folks who would come to a synagogue or a, quote, church on Sunday. These are not the people who would come to a prayer meeting. These are not the people who would come to a Bible study. These are the people who are like, get me away from that. I don't want that, which is really their defense mechanism to say, really, I'm hurting, and I actually need help. But these Pharisees over here, they're, they're telling me about this God who just wants me to do a bunch of stuff right, and I can't do that. Ah, and they're not even giving me a good example for it. And so these are the people who came to dinner with Jesus, and these are the people who were welcome at his table. And so that makes me wonder, for you and for me, are there boundaries about who and who cannot be at a table with you? Now, there might be some practical considerations, and I get that, like safety issues, right? But at the same time, are there are those walls that we put up 
and say, nope, I'm not going not gonna to go there, can't go there, for whatever social or economic reason. Like, is somebody too stinky to be around? I know, you can laugh, it's okay. Like, are, unless you're a stinky person like me, <laughs> you know, like, you know, are, is that a factor? Is it, that person just drives me nuts and I can't be around them because how could anybody just be, <laughs> well, there's like that too. And so, you know, and those are certain considerations, but then, like, are there deeper considerations like I was mentioning, like that sort of hawks versus dove social construct that was at play? Is it, in today's world, is it a mask versus no mask thing? For those who are on one side, it's a really big deal. On the other side, it's equally as big of a deal. And depending on where you fall, there could be a boundary up. Maybe for good reason. However, is there a boundary of who we allow at our table to, to fellowship with and to be with? Because for Jesus, he was, he was cool. He, he was okay with them being at the table. He was okay with their questions. He was okay with them being there with him and being guilty by association by being with them because his compassionate heart was actually for these people who had come out to see him. And what a scandalous thing to be one of the disciples who had been taxed. Maybe like the day before, I don't know, I'm imagining that. But like, what would happen if now suddenly there's a bunch of tax collectors coming to see Jesus and, but you just, you took money from me and you gave it to the Romans and I'm mad about that. Really, like, it, it can be either that serious or that petty <laughs> at times. And yet, these are the people, and this is the situation that he's inviting his disciples into, he's calling his disciples into. How interesting. You can go two slides from now. There we go. All right, final slide, home stretch. Well, not the final slide. We're in the home stretch. Here we go. Nope, nope, go back. I haven't, yep, yeah, here we go. All right. So the third and final thing I see is the scandalous mercy of Jesus offends the righteous. There was a term I was going to use there, but I figured it might be too triggering for some of you, so I'm not going to use it today. Someday I might. <laughs> but I think Jesus' mercy is scandalous enough for today and offensive enough. It offended the Pharisees, who somehow happened to be there scoping out what Jesus was doing too. And they were asking the disciples, why is your teacher doing this? This is not acceptable, clearly. He, did he not get the memo all those years that he was around that you should not hang out with these folks? And Jesus gives the answer. He gave a threefold answer. He pointed out, first, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick who do. The second is that Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which we'll touch on in a moment. And the third is that I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. And that's good news because every single one of us are sinners in need of God's grace and God's love. And so, 
at the heart of this response that Jesus gives is a very important citation. So now you can go to the next slide. From Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, it's one of the minor prophets. It's the prophet that he had a very scandalous task that God had tasked him with to go and marry a prostitute. And then no matter how many times she was unfaithful, to go and bring her back again and to be loving and to be faithful to his wife, to model God's love to his people. And so, oh man, so in Hosea 6, God is talking to his people through Hosea, through this circumstance, through this scandal that's happening and that he has to live through this time and time again. But God says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now that word for love there is the Hebrew word hesed, and it means kindness, it means goodness, it means mercy, loyalty, graciousness, faithfulness. It's God's covenant love to his people that is unmerited and unearned, but it's there for his people. It's also how God describes himself. So in Exodus 34, um, Moses asks for, to see God's glory. He says, I can't do that or else I'll have to kill you, but I'll pass by you and I'll, let you, and I'll declare my name before you. And so God, he, he passes by, Moses is there, and God says, he's declaring the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Isn't that good? That's a good picture of our God. That reminds me of that song we sang earlier, the goodness of God, the chesed of God. Now, why that's important is because Jesus cites that and in the Greek how our English translations translate the Greek, it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire you to be merciful in that, in that love, not just religious, not just performing some ritual to me like that's going to do you some good. I want to see love. And so Jesus challenges the Pharisees to say, go and learn this that God said, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. You can go to the, final, uh, the next slide. And so that's scandalous, is it not? And so, friends, so thinking at, in this progression, if Jesus' mercy offends you, what does that tell you about how you know God? Because there's that other half of that verse where it's like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so those two ideas, they, they merge together. How do you know God? How have you experienced God? God doesn't just want you to give up all your stuff or to make this sacrifice or to cost you everything. He wants to show you his love and his mercy. And so if you're offended by that, of whoever receives that, 
and you get to see on Facebook of all places that somebody's life turns around and you're like, man, I really didn't like them in the first place. But their life turned around and they, they came to know Jesus. Ah, ah. You know, if that offends you, <laughs> what does that tell you about how you know the Lord? Now, Christ's call communicates compassionate character. That's a, just a fancy way of saying Jesus is modeling for his disciples love. Pure, unconditional, unadulterated love to anyone and everyone, regardless of whether they actually chose to follow him or not. Through that, you know, that, that call to follow the people who we least expect, you know, the questionable people at the table with Jesus, people we, we may not want to associate with. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to dinner with an IRS tax consultant. I just don't want to do that because I've, you know, they'll probably research me and find some way I didn't do my taxes right. <laughs> and, you know, Jesus' love is scandalous. And it was scandalous when he chose you and when he chose me. And that is amazing, crazy news to think about. Let's pray.